Good morning. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 this morning, verses 14 through 30. Uh, and over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through, that's probably more than a couple of weeks, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, just by way of recap, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus receive His baptism, right? And as He was being baptized, it says the Holy Spirit descended on Him like a dove. And a voice comes out of heaven, right? Obviously, God's voice saying, This is my Son, right? My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God gives Jesus His stamp of approval, stating His perfect pleasure in Jesus. And it says that Jesus was led in the power of the Spirit out to the wilderness to be tempted. Where Jesus stayed for 40 days, fasting and being tempted by Satan. And Kevin led us through that last week. And we saw where the first Adam, back in Genesis 3, wilted under temptation. The new Adam, Jesus, when faced with temptation, endured. He stayed the course. He didn't abandon the mission, fortunately for us. And so today, the Gospel of Luke can take us back to Jesus, going back to his hometown of Nazareth. And so, if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report about Him went all throughout the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. As was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll, and He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him and ask for his help in understanding it this morning. Lord Jesus... Lord, we come humbly to Your Word this morning knowing that we need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to help us understand the truths here. We need Your Spirit to reveal the areas of our heart that are not in conformity with Your Word. 
We need your spirit to open up our eyes to see your glory and your majesty. Father, lest we respond in unbelief like the people of Nazareth. Father, help us this morning as we study your word. Lord, it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. So, May 10th, 1940. Uh, if you are a history buff, that date might mean something to you. If you're like me and maybe not so much, you're going, what are we doing, right? May 10th, 1940 is the day that Germany invaded France in World War II. Uh, and so it's kind of appropriate that we're praying for France this morning. But uh, whenever Germany invaded France, what they began to do was the, the German forces completely overwhelmed the Allied forces. And they began to drive back the Allied forces in Germany. And as they're driving them back, they push them as far as they can until they end up at a place called Dunkirk, right? A port city in France. And so you can imagine, as the German forces are bearing down, some 400,000 troops end up crammed on a beach in Dunkirk with nowhere to go. And this went on, this pushing them back, I think it took about 12 days. And so on May 26th, when the troops had finally been pushed all the way to Dunkirk, basically they're realizing they're out of options. And you would expect the Germans to continue to bear down on them, right? They kind of have them right where they want them. And Hitler, out of a fear of a counterattack, decided to wait. We're going to give it two days, but we're going to go on May 28th. And over the course of those two days, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, became convinced that evacuation was their only option, or otherwise they were going to lose these 400,000 troops. They were just waiting to be slaughtered. And so the problem with Dunkirk was that the port was incredibly shallow. And so you couldn't bring in these big naval carriers to rescue thousands at a time. You could only bring in small ships. And so they began sending small naval ships across the English Channel. It's about a 21-mile journey across the Channel trying to rescue troops off of the beach at Dunkirk. So again, 400,000 troops. And over the first two days, while Hitler's kind of waiting, getting more intel, over the first two days, only 17,000 troops were rescued. And so Churchill decides there's got to be something else we can do. And if you've read about this in a history book, or you remember anything from your high school days, or if you're like me and you've just watched the movie Dunkirk, right, you know what ends up happening, that... Churchill basically calls for private citizens to get their fishing boats and their recreational boats, right, just small civilian ships to go across the channel and start bringing troops back. And this takes several days. But I'm trying to imagine being a young man trapped on the beach at Dunkirk, right? You've been pushed back as far as you can go and you've got water behind you and German forces in front of you that are lining up to slaughter you. There appears to be no hope You're watching a few at a time be rescued and you're just kind of assuming you're living your last few days. You've probably gone weeks with very little food. I can't imagine you've had very much sleep and you're just waiting to die. The situation's dire. It's hopeless. But then I wonder what it felt like around May 28th when they see a fleet of civilian ships break across the horizon that help was on the way. I wonder what that rescue would have felt like. What it would have felt like to see that maybe the hope, maybe it wasn't a hopeless situation after all, that hope had arrived. And if you know the story, you know that around 330,000, 338,000 troops were saved off the beach at Dunkirk. So not everyone, but it was considered an overwhelming success in the face of dire circumstances. 
So what does that have to do with the story of Jesus here in Luke chapter 4? When Luke was writing his gospel, he wasn't writing it primarily to be chronological, right? It's likely the story, this episode of Jesus in Nazareth, it actually happened much later in his ministry. But for some reason, Luke puts it up at the very front of his gospel. It's the introduction to Jesus' ministry for Luke. And the reason why, I think, is because it shows us a picture of Jesus actually articulating the essence of the gospel, the very heart of his mission. So how did Jesus describe the gospel? How did Jesus describe the heart of his mission? He described it primarily as a rescue mission. And this is my attempt to summarize what Jesus teaches in these verses. The gospel is a total rescue that is available at this very moment to anyone who will believe. So we're going to break that up into three parts and look at each one. So first, the gospel is nothing less than a total rescue. Alright, so I want you to picture the scene of Jesus in Nazareth. He's come back home, right? Come to a small hometown. And he's become somewhat of a celebrity, right? His teachings have become famous. His miracles, well known. He's the talk of all the region. And so just like if Tim Keller walked in the church, obviously Tim Keller's not performing any miracles, but he's a well-known teacher, right? If Tim Keller walked in this morning, I'm getting out from behind the pulpit. Tim Keller's going to be teaching you guys this morning. So Jesus comes to the synagogue, and when he does, he's asked to teach. He's kind of a celebrity teacher in town. But I love how Luke tells us it was his custom to go to the synagogue. It was his custom. In other words, it was his habit, his non-negotiable part of his week, and it was to be with God's people. This is a bit of a side note, but I want you to hear what Philip Ryken says about this, because I think it's appropriate and just a brief point we need to make. He says, if anyone had the right to think that he didn't have to go to worship, it was Jesus. Imagine how many times he had to sit through below average teaching, how easy it would have been for him to say that he didn't need to go to the synagogue, that he could commune with his father better somewhere else, off by himself. Yet throughout his life, Jesus maintained a regular pattern of worship. And so I might be preaching metaphorically to the choir a little bit, but I think it's important to note that if Jesus felt that it was important, as the Son of God, the greatest preacher that ever lived, one who had perfect communion with the Father, if he felt like it was important to be at church with God's people worshiping every week, then I would say it's probably wise to think that we should probably cultivate that same pattern in our life. So Jesus, he stands up to read the scripture. It says that he was given the scroll of Isaiah, but that he found the passage, meaning that the passage that he selected was highly intentional. And Jesus started reading from Isaiah 61 and 58. This is what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So one of the things that was repeatedly prophesied in Isaiah was this suffering servant, right? This mysterious Messiah, this mysterious figure that was going to show up on the scene at some point in Israel's history, and he was going to come and bring salvation to God's people. And so when Jesus chooses to read from Isaiah, he singles out this passage, and I believe it's to emphasize this truth, that the mission of this suffering servant was to come to liberate, to bring freedom 
It was to rescue. That was at the heart of this suffering servant's mission. This was at the heart of what the Messiah would come to do. And there were four groups that Isaiah mentioned would be the beneficiaries of this salvation. It was the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Now what all of these groups have in common, not only were they on the bottom of the social ladder, but they were also completely hopeless, right? They didn't have any hope. If you were oppressed, if you were blind... If you were in prison, if you were impoverished, you were completely at other people's mercy. Free to be taken advantage of, free to be kicked around. You had no freedom. You were set for a life of suffering. And it's to these people that Isaiah reveals that the heart of God is moved to rescue. The heart of God was moved to rescue those who could not rescue themselves, those who had nothing to offer. But Isaiah doesn't just stop there. He goes on to build on this picture of liberation and rescue by bringing up the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you think back to everybody's favorite book of the Bible in Leviticus, because I know you guys just picked through that with a fine-tooth comb back in February, right? When you go through Leviticus, you come to a place in Leviticus 25 where God brings up the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. And so this year of Jubilee... God describes it in uh, Leviticus 25.10. He says, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So get this, every 50th year, the people were to celebrate a year of restoration, of liberation. During this time... Debts were totally forgiven. Anyone who had lost property due to unpaid debts, they received that land back. Anyone who owed money to someone, they no longer owed that money. Anyone who had sold themselves into slavery to cover a debt, they were to be released and returned to their people. This was to to be a year of freedom, of joy, of liberation. Why? To point forward to the year of rescue that God was going to bring, a time of rescue and joy. So in proclaiming good news and freedom to the oppressed, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, this suffering servant would bring about a jubilee to end all jubilees. He would come to usher in a time of joy, liberation, and restoration. This is what God had promised to do for His people ever since the very beginning because His heart is moved with compassion towards the hopeless and those without help. So the good news... The gospel that this suffering servant was coming to bring was going to be less, was going to be nothing less than a total rescue. But then, Jesus takes an unexpected turn. Verse 20 says, And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So this is point number two. Not only is the gospel nothing less than a total rescue, this rescue is available now, at this very moment. So when Jesus sits down, right, says that they're all fixing their eyes on him. They're just waiting to see what is he going to say now. And Jesus says, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. The salvation you've been waiting on is here. The suffering servant that had been promised was in their midst. The one who would proclaim and bring freedom to Israel had arrived. 
And whether they realize it or not, Jesus was doing more than just saying, this time has arrived. He's saying, I'm the one bringing it. I am that Messiah. I am the suffering servant. He had been anointed with God's Spirit at His baptism, right? We've talked about that. And now He was there to rescue God's people. Now, at this point, we need to ask this question. What exactly was the nature of this salvation that Jesus was bringing? What was the nature of this rescue? Isaiah prophesied that when the suffering servant came, it would be to restore sight to the blind, to preach good news to the oppressed, to the poor, to the prisoners. Did Jesus come to do just that? Preach to physically blind people, to literally oppressed and imprisoned people. A first century Jew may have heard these words from Jesus as some kind of a political manifesto, right? They expected some kind of a social and political revolution, a physical deliverance. And see, Jesus certainly could have done this. It was totally within His power to do this. And in fact, Satan tempted Him to do just that. And Jesus never turned a blind eye to the physical needs of people, right? He healed the sick. He even raised the dead. He fed those who were hungry. He gave sight to the blind. He freed people from demonic oppression. But this wasn't His primary mission, was it? It wasn't just to meet physical needs. People looking for an earthly kingdom like this would be frustrated all throughout the gospel accounts by Jesus. So what was He there to do? If it was more than just meet physical needs, what was He there to do? Jesus was there to rescue those who were spiritually impoverished. Those who were prisoners, held captive to their sin. Those who were spiritually blind to their condition and to God's willingness to save them. Those who were oppressed and bullied by sin. See, when Isaiah prophesies about these people who had nothing to offer, those who were without hope, those in need of a rescue, Isaiah is actually talking about people trapped in sin. And that's the kind of people that Jesus came to save. Yes, He met physical needs, but He had primarily come to rescue those who could not rescue themselves. Those who were bullied under sin's oppression. I wonder if you've ever considered yourself in those terms. I think sometimes when we think about sin, we tend to think that we are basically good people with just a few blemishes on our record. Maybe a few bad habits went into kick, but we're basically good people. I wonder if you've ever considered that maybe that's not the picture of you the Bible paints. That when the Bible talks about humanity, Paul in Ephesians 2 makes it abundantly clear that when we're born, we are born into sin. That when we are born, we are already hemmed in on all sides by sin inside of us, right? The flesh... We have the devil lurking around seeking to deceive and to destroy us. And you have the world around us. We are hemmed in by sin on all sides. We're not basically good people with a few blemishes. We are people totally trapped in sin. Held captive to our flesh, to sin in us and around us. So in other words, we are in a spiritual Dunkirk of sorts. Sin has pushed us and bullied us around, and we have nowhere to turn. We're facing the grip of sin with no hope, no seeming chance of a rescue. But then in Jesus, there's a light that breaks over the horizon. 
we begin to see a rescue coming. Hope breaks in. Jesus makes it clear that He is that rescue for hopeless sinners like us. And that rescue is not something off in the future, but it's here right now. Now, it's very probable that Jesus' hearers did not understand exactly what He was saying. They certainly didn't understand the nature of it. But they're going to really clearly understand what He says next. So look with me in verse 22. And all spoke, or excuse me, verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow. There are many lepers in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town. They brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so they could throw him off the cliff." But then it says, passing through their midst, he went away. So a couple of things we need to unpack. And this is point number three, is that this rescue is for anyone who will believe. This rescue is for anyone who will believe. So as Jesus finishes, and they're all marveling at his words, the gracious speech that was coming out of his mouth, they're trying to reconcile how this could possibly be the son of Joseph. This heavenly wisdom we're hearing sounds like a prophet. How can this be the boy we saw grow up in the house of the carpenter? And Jesus, proving that He is fully God, He tells them what they're about to ask Him. And He says, Surely you're about to quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. That seems a little bit strange to us. What are they really wanting? What they really wanted was this. They're saying, Jesus, do for your own people what you did at Capernaum. Surely if you can go perform miracles elsewhere to prove that you're the real deal... Then you need to do a few miracles here. You need to prove yourself. And they're asking this ultimately because of their unbelief. They're showing their own hardness of heart. He was claiming to be the Messiah, but they were going to require some proof. And I wonder how many times we put God to a similar test. How many times do we know that Jesus is Messiah? We say that He's Lord and that He's come to save us and we... We come to church and we believe that. But how many times do we kind of stand at a distance waiting for God to prove Himself, prove His love to us by meeting some physical need? It's exactly what these people were doing. Saying, hey, if you're the real deal, that's fine. Just show us a few tricks and we'll buy in. But Jesus wasn't about to have His arm twisted by such demands. And so then... Jesus responds with two stories from the Old Testament. After saying that no prophet is accepted in his hometown, he then goes on to tell two stories from the Old Testament. One about Elijah and one about his successor, Elisha. And the first story that he gives us is a story from 1 Kings 17 where Elijah went to a widowed woman in Sidon. And basically what was happening during this time was there was an extreme famine over all the land. And God sends Elijah to this widow's house, and she had just the last little bit of flour to her name, and a little bit of oil, and she was about to make two cakes, one for her and one for her son. 
And she said, we're going to eat them so we can just go ahead and prepare to die. This is all we've got. We're hopeless. And Elijah shows up and asks the most ridiculous thing of her. He says, how about instead you make me a cake and I promise you that your flour will not run out until the famine has subsided. And so the woman took God at His word and made the cake and she did not run out of flour or oil until after the famine was over. She took God at His word and she was saved. She was spared. And then the second story that he tells is from Second Kings chapter 5. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we're presented with a man named Naaman who comes down with leprosy. And again, at this time, right, there, there's no cure for leprosy. If you have leprosy, you are a dead man walking. You're about to be cut off from the rest of society. Your life, like your days are numbered and they're not going to be fun days. And so someone tells Naaman, you need to go see the prophet Elisha. He'll know what to do. And so Naaman goes to Elisha and he says, okay, what do I have to do to be healed of my leprosy? And Elisha says, easy, just go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman actually gets kind of frustrated. He was looking for some kind of a magical solution. And someone convinces him, no, 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 you need to go and do what he says. And so Naaman does. He goes and dips himself in the water seven times of the Jordan River. And it says that his skin was restored like baby skin. So again, we have another example of someone taking God at his word and being spared. Now, I think that Jesus told these stories for two reasons. Number one, one of the things that the widow had in common with Naaman was that they were both total outsiders. Neither of these people were Jewish. One was a widow in Sidon, and another was a Syrian officer. One of Israel's most bitter enemies. Commander of their army. So they were both outsiders. So Jesus was letting His audience know that the salvation the suffering servant was going to bring... Not only was it a spiritual salvation, but it was for anyone. That God was making this salvation available, not just in Nazareth, and not even just in Israel, but this salvation was going to be available for the whole world. For Jews and Gentiles alike. And I think the second reason why he told this story was because both the widow and Naaman took God at His word. In other words... Naaman and the widow had faith. And their faith is what saved them. See, Israel had a history of rejecting God's prophets out of their unbelief. Jesus was calling His hearers to see that the promises of God had been fulfilled in their midst and all they needed to do was believe. That was it. God's delivered His promises. Now all you have to do to be rescued is just believe. But their spiritual blindness is so evident. Isn't it interesting that they're proving the need for Jesus right here? That it's their spiritual blindness that causes them to respond in anger. And here they are about to run the very Messiah they've been waiting on out of town to stone Him off a cliff. But Jesus didn't allow them to take His life. Instead, He mysteriously, miraculously departed from them. And so... Not only is this salvation nothing less than total rescue, not only is it here right now is what Jesus says, and it's available to the whole world. It's available to anyone who will believe. And so in closing, I want to give you just two questions to consider to help us apply this for a second. Two questions. Number one, I want to ask you, have you ever seen yourself as being totally hopeless apart from Christ? 
Have you ever come to see yourself as being spiritually blind, impoverished, imprisoned, unable to rescue yourself? Have you ever come to see yourself that way apart from Christ? And if you have, there's some very good news for you. Is that you actually having nothing to offer Jesus is what qualifies you for His rescue. Jesus is not here to save those who are trying to help save themselves. He's not here for those with something to offer Him. He came for the desperate, for the needy, for the broken. So if you've come to see yourself that way, trapped in sin without any hope apart from Christ, then you are in the perfect spot to experience the salvation of Jesus. And so, if you haven't seen that, my question is, will you stop trying to earn the love of the Father today? Would you actually take Him at His word that all it takes is faith? Or will you respond in unbelief and harden your heart? The offer of a rescue is available to you today. You need only believe. But then the second question I want us to, to ask really quickly. If you have taken God at His word and you've rested in His rescue... You've come to see yourself as being spiritually bankrupt with nothing to offer. How does that change the way you see other people? I wonder if you ever thought about that. If, if we're accepting what the Bible defines as the human condition, being totally hopeless, totally spiritually bankrupt, impoverished, nothing to offer, how does that change the way you view other people? If we're honest, every single person in this room, we have sort of a group of undesirables that we really don't like to associate with. I don't know what really defines that group of people for you. Maybe it's just, well, I don't like people that seem two-faced. I don't like people who vote this way. I, you know, I only really hang out with people who have these particular hobbies. Maybe it's not so much a conscious thing. Maybe you only find yourself hanging around people who work in the same place, have the same income level. And go to the same vacation spots. But whatever it is, there's a group of people that we would just really rather not associate with and hang out with. But see, the funny thing about that is that the gospel has already totally outed us as being the very worst of the worst. If what the Bible says is true and we are totally spiritually bankrupt, then we stand in line with every single person on the planet regardless of skin color, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of what religion they currently hold, as being totally condemned and without hope apart from Jesus Christ. We have the same need. It means there's no one beneath us. If we buy this definition of our existence, if we buy this definition of our sin, church, there is no room for a superiority complex in the church. No one is beneath us and no one is beyond our reach. God came to save the hopeless, the desperate. If He'll save us, praise God, He will save anybody. Every single person on the face of the planet for all time, as sons and daughters of Adam, stand totally condemned and in need of Jesus. See, the good thing about Jesus here at the end of this passage, the good thing about Him not being stoned at the end of this passage is that He actually walked away from that. Miraculously, I mean, I don't know how that looked for Him to just disappear from an angry crowd. I don't know what that looked like, 
But Jesus just walks away. He disappears from their midst. And when He left there, He continued on in His ministry, didn't He? He continued to heal the sick and restore sight to the blind. He continued to live a perfect life. And for another three years, He continued to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, that this suffering servant had come. And then He walked up a hill called Golgotha and allowed Himself to be crucified. No one took His life from Him. He says, but I lay it down freely. And Jesus laid down His life, allowed Himself to be crucified so that He could provide a rescue for hopeless people like us. That's the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus brought good news. A gospel of total rescue. And He's made it available to anyone who will believe right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You did not choose to leave us to our own self-destruction. Lord, but that You chose to save us. Lord, You chose to send a suffering servant, not to lead a political or a social revolution, but Lord, You sent someone who was going to come and die for our sin to provide a rescue. Father, would You help us today not to have too high a view of ourselves, nor too low a view of ourselves. Would we never see ourselves as being able to help in our own salvation process? And would we also never see ourselves as being too far out of Your reach? Lord, would You help us to feel our need for You this morning? To see ourselves as being the blind, the captive, the oppressed, the poor. And to see that You've provided a salvation for people just like us. Lord, You help us to rejoice in that. Will You give us eyes to see, fill our hearts with joy. And Lord, then send us out into a world filled with people who have the same condition we had. Father, help us to point them to You, the only one who can provide a rescue. Lord, it's in Your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Zach. We're going to do it old school this morning, and the pastor is going to lead us in the last song. How about that? We're going to sing three verses of I Surrender All. So let's, uh, let's stand. It is a little bit humorous that Fred chose the song I Surrender All for our giving time.